though BuzzFeed is on the way out, there has been a BuzzFeedification of the internet. There are people who've learned from this gaming of the algorithms and hijacking of people's attention, mixing seemingly stupid content with super substantive stuff that fits their agenda. I think a lot of people learned from this and mimicked it. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, I want to pat myself on the back. We made a bet a little while ago about this Georgia runoff. Do you remember mm-hmm. this bet? I do indeed. What I'm, was it I'm over? wearing the consequences of it. Um, well, Warnock um, just won by 2.8%. Could or he's ahead above, by 2.8, yeah. Oh, yeah, could could finish above 3%. But um, the, the Democrats will have a 51 majority now in the Senate. And I am, for those who are just listening, I'm wearing some sort of Biden shirt and... Oh, I didn't even AOC, see the Biden thing. Yeah, there's a Biden shirt and an AOC 2024 pin that is made of printed paper and tape on me so yeah just to remind people i predicted this so i i want full recognition for mm-hmm. this and you, you thought that walker was going to succeed and if i, I said lost, maybe i wasn't yeah. even that oh, dedicated to it okay. no i was i mean we can put but, back the clip they think a lot of the people who voted for the libertarian third candidate are probably more right-leaning than left and if that additional kind of option is taken away i wouldn't be surprised if walker takes a good portion of them because it is very, very close right now. And it's really just a matter of how those voters shake out unless something dramatic happens in terms of the candidates between now and then. Right, I have actually a, a bet we can do on this. So I think if if I'm right and, and Warnock uh, squeaks that one out, why don't we do this? Uh, you uh, have to walk around Manhattan wearing a Joe Biden hat and I'll wear a DeSantis one if I lose. <laughs> I have a Make America safe for me. I have a Make America Hot Again hat, and it's pink, so I'll be I'll giving that. you that right, if, if you lose. I've got to okay. think of somebody worse than than maybe an AOC hat or something. Okay. So just let it be established that I am undefeated in bets against my own staff members. Yes. There's actually You're one for one. Kudos or? to you because you actually made good on your bet. Our, our very own Joe G lost a bet to me not too long ago, where he's supposed to take a dance class where there's it's actually at Equinox where there's like a glass divider where yeah. I would be able to watch him take this dance class. But he has uh, not yet made good on that I want to join. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you at least honor your bets. Yes. So kudos to you for that. But obviously this has huge implications for the Democrats. We'll talk about it maybe another time, maybe as the Senate sits in, in January. Mm. But there was other news. So just as we're about to sit down for this podcast, it was announced that Brittany Griner will be released from Russia in a prisoner exchange for Victor Boots, who is the arms dealer, the merchant of death. We've done a whole segment on this, so I don't wanna go into it. I think it's great news that she's leaving. We talked about some of the complications around who this prisoner swap would be for, notably yeah. Paul Whelan, who is another American held prisoner, a former Marine, was not released. So mm-hmm. the terms of this release are something I think that are, that are gonna be scrutinized, but we will not be talking about that on the show today. Well, what we will be talking about first is that um, we have a few announcements up top, including the fact that we are doing a best of the show episode at the end of this year. So feel free to call in at our voicemail, 321-200-0570. Yeah, okay, got it off the top of my head. Um, And tell us what your favorite segments are, um, any best moments of the show, what you love about it, and yeah. Well, we're also up for the Signal Award. So we're up for this award called Best Conversation Starter. And we're going head-to-head with billionaire and PayPal Mafia member Reed Hoffman. So we don't ask you for a lot, listeners. It's a free podcast with, at the moment, no advertising. So one thing we ask is to go to this link, vote.lostdebate.com slash signal. We'll send you right to where you need to vote. That's vote.lostdebate.com slash signal. You only need to vote for this category. And it matters a lot to us because, you know, we're small and mighty and we're going up against a juggernaut, a billionaire who has all the resources in the world that I'm sure he's deploying to crush us in this vote. So it would be really nice if we won the Listener's Choice Award there. But Ricky, we have a big show today. So without further ado, we're going to talk about the collapse of a media juggernaut. We're also going to talk about a controversial education decision from the Sooner State. But first, the Supreme Court this week heard arguments in a case with the potential to upend the way we do elections. Oral arguments today in a North Carolina case that may have a lot to say about how elections are run in this country. 
complicated case that has democracy and states' rights advocates divided. Moore v. Harper could radically reshape elections in this country. At stake is the question of who runs U.S. elections and who sets election law. This is a case about checks and balances. Fundamentally changing the landscape of election law. Would set on its head 230 years of the way we've been doing business. And that is no small matter. All right, Ricky, this is going to be another legal heavy episode. <laughs> and I promise our listeners... We will probably take a little break from the legal heavy. And promise me as well, yeah. too, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to get my, my money's worth for, for my for your uh, law my, degree, my your law Josh Hawley mentorship. There you go. Yeah. I, you know, I got I to gotta call him for advice on this. But I, I have a feeling I know what he's going to think about this one. This is a case that is prompting a lot of alarm, especially from progressives. It involves redistricting by the Republicans who control both chambers of the North Carolina General Assembly. This year, the state Supreme Court voted in line with its previously 4-3 Democratic majority and ruled that the legislature's congressional map was a partisan gerrymander that violated North Carolina's constitution. Ordinarily, this would be the end of the matter, in part because federal courts don't typically second-guess a state court's interpretations of its own laws. There's actually a law going back like 100, 200 years that prohibits the Supreme Court in many ways from doing that. And Clarence Thomas kicked off questioning by asking that very question, like, why are we here? We don't normally review state Supreme Court's uh, interpretations of state constitutions. So what I'm looking for is why, for example, if this were a case about a state legislator uh, or a legislative district, um, I'm, I'd, it'd be doubtful that you'd be here under the state constitution. So. I'm looking for an explanation as to why this case is here. There are implications here that could be pretty wide reaching, which I think is an answer to his question. Um, but basically what's happening is the legislature in North Carolina is suing based on the state legislature theory, which is um, part of the election clause of the Constitution, which says that the times, places, and manners of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, which seems to give pretty solid standing to their claim that they're they really should have the primary jurisdiction over what goes on in their elections in their states. But then this becomes a question of the checks and balances and what is the role of the governor or the state courts to potentially curb their power if that ends up getting abused. And so the question here is really, is it like the traditional oversight of states and courts that we've come to expect in this country through checks or balances, or can the legislature act alone with no oversight? And so um, previously in March, the Supreme Court turned down a request to hold the gerrymandered map and keep North Carolina from having to put in place this new drawn up map that the courts produced. That was turned down, but they agreed to hear arguments in June, and they just heard this first one that we listened to on Wednesday. But the concern is that now at this point, like if if the legislature wins, states could potentially apply this to all elections going forward and they could go beyond just legislative maps. It could uh, like pertain to questions of early voting, submitting votes to presidents. Um, Article two of that same clause has um, an electors clause. And so that means that they could potentially prevent um, checking laws related to federal elections and electors. And so there are widespread implications. And then you see some people um, really concerned that this could be like the end of democracy. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's overblown? Yeah, I think at the independent, they call this the independent state legislature theory, as you're talking about. And it's never been applied in a majority opinion of the Supreme Court before, but it's shown up in various concurrences and other documents issued by the Supreme Court. Most notably during Bush v. Gore, there was a concurrence, which we'll come back to. But the big claim here, and one that I hear on progressive podcasts, including you know one that I've talked to a lot of people about, is the sense of alarm that the this independent state legislative theory would lead states to overrule the will of their electorate and send their own electors for the electoral college, mm -hmm. right? So saying, regardless of how you vote North Carolina, we're going to you know, send electors that are going to support Trump or sort, support yeah. Biden or DeSantis or whatever. And just That's to color that a little bit, um, like Vox and Atlantic ran headlines that were saying this could upend democracy. So there's a lot of panic around the implications here. Yeah, I think my sense is it would be more a death by a thousand cuts than a death blow to democracy, in part because this particular 
sense of alarmism, I think, is misplaced in part because a state legislature can only pick their electors before votes are cast. Mm -hmm. So uh, federal law requires states to choose their electors on election day. So, But there could be laws that stack that in favor of one party or another, but you can't wait for the results and then change the process afterwards according to federal law. And several federal courts have said that after the fact changes, uh, violate due process and equal protection of law. That actually was, in in part, what was going on with Bush v. Gore. Not, I don't want to go too much into that case, but it, a lot of what was going on was the court was saying, all right, the election has already happened, and we're now starting to fiddle with the process of counting the votes afterwards, which they said was a problem. But, Ricky, the bigger issue here has to do with the death by a thousand cuts, gerrymandering, voting rights, etc. This would empower state legislatures, actually in this very direct case of North Carolina, to create rules that favor one party. Now, people are focused on this being pro-Republican and anti-democratic. Yeah. It's not clear cut because you can compare North Carolina to, to New York, which is almost identical case here. Both cases were the state court overruled the legislature and appointed a special master to create districts that were more balanced. In the yeah. case of North Carolina, they went from a very stacked Republican uh, congressional delegation to one that was split 50-50 after the special master. And we all know what happened in New York, too. A lot of people attribute the, the Democrats coming up short in Congress because, in part to the fact that the state court intervened and made more equitable maps. Yeah, this is like the old saying that politicians are picking their voters rather than the other way around. And I yep. think that's like a larger systemic issue that we're talking about checks and balances here, but I think there's also room for actual reform on independent redistricting commissions. And I think it's super easy to look at any individual case as a partisan and say, oh, I'm so concerned that X party or the other party is going to gain an unfair supermajority or a representation in Congress. But like theoretically, any of these provisions could be wielded by either party, any future party. And I think that's a dangerous thing going forward. I mean, it's just completely dementing the degree of representation that certain voters have across the country regardless of their affiliation or the reason why like it puts every voter at risk of potentially having their their input diluted and so I think first of all the checks and balances is important is important but secondly I, there's almost like a lack of conversation around the gerrymandering issue that seems to be larger and more systemic here yeah unquestionably if the Supreme Court endorses this independent state legislature theory it will lead to more partisan gerrymandering yeah. And so the people who are trying to stop the court from endorsing this theory have a few arguments. One is that the term legislature in the Constitution is just another way of referring to states, period. And the way that they see this is that the state legislatures were created by their state constitutions. They're actually creatures of the state constitutions, so they must comply with their constitutions. And Will Bode and Michael McConnell, who are two conservative-leaning legal scholars, wrote in The Atlantic about this, and I'll quote them. They said, the state legislative petitioners, for their part, ignore the fact that the state legislature is created and governed by the people of the state through their state constitutions. Even in matters of election law, the state legislature meets when and where its constitution says to meet and organize the way the state constitution says it's to be organized. There's no reason to think that the framers of the federal constitution intended to liberate state legislatures from the ordinary constraints of state constitutional law. And so what they're essentially saying is you can't just say state legislatures, because if the state legislature started ignoring their own rules, regulations mm -hmm. of the state, somebody would have to intervene and say, well, what is the law? If you apply the yeah. same thing to the Supreme Court, right? Judicial review isn't even in the Constitution. So the, the very act of this Supreme Court ruling on this state legislature's maps is not something fully enshrined, but we just all come to accept that we have courts that interpret laws and hold legislatures accountable to the very laws that they pass and the constitutions that we have. Yeah, and I I mean, reading this, this election clause from the Constitution, it doesn't seem completely clear to me that this would be as sweeping as they're interpreting it to be. To, to say that you have control over the time, place, and manner of holding elections doesn't necessarily mean that you have control over the entirety of the mechanics of getting there in the first place. Mm -hmm. That sounds more to me like just facilitating the process of voting and not facilitating where the vote is happening or what people or jurisdictions are represented by a certain representative. I think, I mean, it's pretty clear that we have a very robust system of checks and balances. That was one of the things that the founding fathers were very intent on for good reason and so to me it's not glaringly obvious that this is like some some 
deprivation of the state legislature's clear right as enshrined by the Constitution to have complete control over how this works. I think it's the manner that people interpret. Say, yeah. Like, all right, if you say it's the manner of the it's election. Just it's manner to me sounds like maybe in, in regard to early voting, which is one of the concerns here as well. Like that seems like something that would probably fall under the manner clause rather than I don't think the manner of the, an election is like where it takes place. That seems mm-hmm. like a kind of higher up level. But like historically, you know, accepting everything about this debate around independent state legislative theory, the courts have given a pretty wide sense of latitude to states under that very clause. The question is, can their own courts check them? And this actually came up in 2019 in a case called Rucho versus Common Cause. And this was also a case in North Carolina. And this starts to get you, gets us to the the story of, well, what's going to happen here? How can we predict what these mm-hmm. justices are going to do? So one critical player here is going to be Chief Justice John Roberts. He wrote the conservative majority in that case, and he declared in that case that federal courts had no authority to review cases concerning partisan gerrymandering. And he went out of his way to note the following. He said, provisions in state statutes and state constitutions can provide standards and guidance for state courts to apply. So he seems to think state courts have a role in cases like this, or at least he did back then. And that's the more decentralized take is that like the federal government should not be deciding how all of these districts are are carved out, but the state courts in this like federalist system should have the jurisdiction and the oversight to make sure that there's not corruption of the legislature, which right. seems very reasonable. And it seems pretty clear that the three liberal justices will not be buying this election clause argument from the legislature. Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito all seem sympathetic to it based on their past writings. But um, as you mentioned, Roberts and Kavanaugh and Barrett would be the sort of swing votes here to look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this gets a little tricky in part. One you know, grand irony of all this is Harvard Law School's uh, Nicholas Stephanopoulos ran a series of simulations to say, well, if the court endorsed the independent state legislative theory, what would happen? Ironically, this would help the North Carolina GOP, but hurt the national GOP. So if this, if state courts had no role here, it would actually net Democrat seats according to the simulation. And it's not hard to remember why. What, you know, you look at places like California with its its redistricting commission, New York, where we saw some of the you know the biggest losses for Democrats in their attempt to do partisan gerrymandering, it all nets out actually against the GOP. So it's it's kind of one of these things that it will it could have an ironic result. But ProPublica had an interesting article saying there's a more narrow version of the interpretation of this that would allow certain members of the court to have it both ways. Now, ProPublica sees this as as partly a partisan interpretation where they say there's kind of a split the baby in half approach that the court could take that could actually help the national GOP while also keeping the North Carolina maps in place. Uh, And part of this, I think, was articulated, and I'm not saying Roberts is partisan here, but in his uh, oral arguments, he started to raise the possibility of a third way here. I mean, if they had a more precise articulation of what the limits were that they were going to apply, whether it's going to be a particular percentage of gerrymandering uh, uh, departure or something more substantive, is it the problem that they're just interpreting something that gives them free reign, or is that not a consideration? What Roberts is asking here is, well, Can we get into the mechanics of what the courts are doing, the state courts are doing, and ask, are they being specific enough as state courts in what they're articulating and asking of the legislature? And ProPublica seems to think that this is an opportunity for the court to overrule what happened in North Carolina, where you had a state that kind of was interpreting broad language within the state statutes and taking it into their own hands to write their own maps versus New York, where there was a very specific provision of New York law that bans partisan gerrymandering. So what could happen here, and I actually think this is the most likely outcome, is that the court as a whole doesn't endorse the independent state legislative theory, meaning I don't think they go so far as to say courts have no role, but they're going to carve out a very particular way that the courts could intervene, saying, all right, you can intervene, but you can only intervene in cases where there is a very precise statute on the books that you're interpreting, not some broad language that you bring your own meaning to. This violates, in my opinion, 
a longstanding principle of the Supreme Court, going back to the Judiciary Act of 1789. That law states that the Supreme Court cannot review state court judgments on questions of purely state law. So it seems to me like Roberts is trying to have it both ways, and he's actually intervening and micromanaging the state courts. That seems problematic to me, but the very the most likely outcome here. Okay, let's turn our attention to BuzzFeed here, um, which is formerly like the gold standard of new media innovative company that popped up in the early 2010s and really had a kind of chokehold on the creative content on YouTube, on, on the news front as well, clickbait articles, which now is continuing to really struggle over the past couple of years. And their CEO just announced a 12% job cut, which is the second major round of layoffs since 2019. And so it's bringing up a lot of questions of like, why did this place that was really just a powerhouse cranking out viral videos, viral articles, occasionally really high level journalism occasionally? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> how did they fall from their grace to this point where I think they're pretty much totally irrelevant to most people on their day-to-day lives. Yeah, you don't hear a lot about them anymore. Certainly not well-trusted. Um, but just to remind everyone, this is a, a company that got a Pulitzer Prize for um, exp exposing mass detention camps in China. They pulled in 28 million page views in just one day on the what color is, a dr is this dress sort of debacle, if you remember that. Is it black and blue or blue, blue or white and gold? Black, yeah, whatever. Is it in the shadow or is it in the light? Like really just <laughs> a whole gradation of really stupid stuff and occasionally some really enlightening stuff as well. Um, but they were known for their like high volume, low effort content and just like churning out this powerhouse of viral videos right and left. And now here we are, they're like barely scraping in just a fraction of what they used to. And so, so there's questions kind of swirling around what aspect of this company caused it to ultimately fall, whether it was like a hyper political turn that they took, whether it was just a, an increase in competition, whether it was their business model ultimately failing. So yeah. a lot of different theories. You know, in the height of BuzzFeed's, you know, dominance, it was like, I think it was 2016 or 2017, I I took a tour of their offices by Union Square. Yeah, and in Gramercy. I used to was, live right by them. Yeah, it, and I was over there too. I was on 18th. And they, it was like walking into Google headquarters at its prime. It was a beautiful space, super expensive, roof decks, unlimited amenities, humongous staff, Great yeah. energy at the time. They were they were they reached this point where they were not only serving up the dumb cat videos, but also doing really important journalism. Yeah. And you know, at a certain point, they got to the point where they were controversial in every possible way. Yeah. They were controversial because of the way they were gaming algorithms and and hijacking our attention. But then they also had the steel dossier and the way they handled that. And it was it was a company that I never really interacted with a lot, yeah. but that was clearly, you know, just uh, like hitting its stride in every possible way, and it quickly disintegrated. And I think the theories out there are many. One is that there were just a lot of competitors that mimicked what it did. I find this an interesting theory, but I you start to look down the list of the companies that people describe as their main competitors. A lot of them aren't even around yeah. anymore. Aussie Media, Mike Media, Gawker. Like these are companies that either don't exist anymore or are struggling themselves. You know, there are some like now this that are pretty dominant, but I think those companies suffered from many of the same issues that yeah. BuzzFeed had, which is huge burnout. Like a lot of this, like serving up all this crazy content means people have to stay late. They have to constantly create soulless content. This also, like these companies also struggle on the weight of uh, renewed scrutiny around 2020, around their hiring practices, their diversity uh, and inclusion efforts, and just different expectations from staff. And so I think you put that all together with the fact that a lot of the algorithms were changing and people weren't interacting with news the same way. So people were interacting with news more on Instagram, TikTok, et cetera, less Facebook, which was the dominant platform that mm -hmm. that BuzzFeed was was gaming. So I don't know. Those are some of the theories out there. Yeah. I, I don't find any one of them like conclusive on its own, but I think it was maybe a, you know, a combination of forces. Yeah, I mean, just by comparison to your anecdote about touring those offices i think it's like 18th street or something like that and i lived literally less than a block from them for a year and right before i was moving out i noticed they like in new york if you have a big company you tend to have a subtle sign mm. like you're not going to have like yeah. this is where <laughs> all the twitter stuff is happening behind closed doors so it was like a very subtle buzzfeed sign and i'm walking past it and i'm like 
I've been living right next to BuzzFeed for a year and I had no idea. Like that's how irrelevant it was to me in my daily life. I didn't see all these young, like bright eyed employees bustling (laughs) in and out all day long. Like that just wasn't the vision when I was there. But I do remember being a teenager myself and like like even a tween, I guess, and consuming these videos. And there was definitely an era where I was politically influenced just by like the the tilt of the videos mm-hmm. that I was watching. And I remember like language policing my silent generation dad about like what the proper Well give me words some examples. I honestly I don't know a really lot about remember, their content, but like so. you know back I think their peak was like a point in time where it was kind of dumb. It was like it was still dumb content, but it mm-hmm. was it was lighthearted and it was consumable and like entertaining of like the try guys do this weird thing or test how much testosterone they have or like really random stuff. And all the guys that were in or all the people that were their personalities, I would say by and large were left leaning. Um, And that was obvious in their content, but not the heart of it at first. Well, I think. from their job postings, then, Ricky. Let me read you one of their job postings. Well, this is here. this is kind of from their <laughs> downfall. I'm saying yeah. in their in their peak, it was left leaning. It was progressive. It was young. It was forward thinking. Not all stuff that I necessarily agree with, but it wasn't inherently political. The stuff that they were churning out, like it was just kind of tinged, and then it turned pretty hard. You can read the job listing, and then I think we should talk about about some of the videos that we have here as well. So this was a job announcement. I think there was BuzzFeed Canada. Yeah, uh, from a writer. senior BuzzFeed writer, and this was, I think, posted on Twitter. Would you like to write long form for BuzzFeed Canada? Well, you can. We want pitches for your Canada-centric essays and reporting. BuzzFeed Canada would particularly like to hear from you if you are not white and not male. Last thing, if you're a white man, and there's a lot of all This caps is all here. in capitals yeah, yeah. here, so you have to read it that way. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't do it. <laughs> if, if you're, you're a white man <laughs> upset that we are looking for mostly non-white, non-men, I don't care about you. And you can go right there for McLean's. I don't know what that is. Uh, there was also some response. White men are still permitted to pitch. I will read it. I will consider it. I'm just less interested because ugh, men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that was the So tone. that kind of became their vibe. And I think that the issue with their politics became that it was so linked to identity politics. Yeah. And that was kind of on the cutting edge in the beginning. And then people kind of got sick of that sort There's of content. There's a company very, run very by quickly. My white men, by the way. It's, well, I always but find this a lot of the, I mean, their creators were very diverse and they were yeah. given, I think that's one of the, the keys to their success originally was that their creators were given like all of this freedom to just make whatever they want, to churn out content on like a low budget basis, all in front of like blank walls and stuff, but just to do stuff and see right. what sticks and stuff did stick. And they had a bunch of really big names, but it also yeah. meant that they had videos that had unbelievable dislike ratios. Um, Just one example that we can look at is questions that women have for men. Why do you say that women are too emotional to be leaders? Then justify catcalling by saying men just can't control themselves. Why do you think that just because you're nice to me, I owe you my body? Why would you ever send an unsolicited dick pic? These are just some of the 36 questions they had for all of men. Half of the- Those are good questions though, I have to say. I just, I think people were a little allergic to the generalized you and a lot of this stuff. And um, like so much of the content was based on X demographics questions for these people or these people do this thing. And I think that that really did bother some people, the degree to which that became central to their political content. Um, And you look at, now they've erased the dislike ratio so you can't see them on on YouTube, like YouTube as a platform. it doesn't matter on some of these platforms. If you get engagement, you get engagement. Except for that 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 kind of comes at the perfect time where the the peak kind of starts dropping down and they become less and less relevant. And I don't think that's entirely coincidental because they did have, they mastered broad-based appeal. They had... They had left-leaning but widely appealing personalities that all ultimately ended up leaving this platform because they realized that they were doing nothing that was like inherently linked to BuzzFeed as a company and they could just go on their own and create the same content and they're still thriving. But now you have BuzzFeed in kind of the shell of the leftover people who didn't launch, whose contracts didn't end and they went somewhere else who are driving this into the ground. And let's talk a little bit about that downfall. But before we get there, let me just read some of the headlines of, you know, BuzzFeed from their heyday. So can you make it through this post without feeling sexually attracted to food? Disney princesses twerking will shatter your childhood. 28 ingenious things for your dog you had no idea you needed. 11 delightful poems found in Pornhub comments. (laughs) Holy crap, cleaning this with sun is super hot. Drunk person accidentally steals cat 
post hilarious Craigslist ad to find owner. These are just some of the headlines. And I have to say, as dumb as this stuff is, that you want to click on some of these things. And this gets to, mm-hmm. you know, a saying that was used in a different context. And somebody, I think the New York Times wrote about USA Today that they were loudly mocked and quietly mimicked. Yeah. I think that though BuzzFeed is on the way out, there, there has been a BuzzFeed vacation of the internet where whether yeah. it's RT serving up cat videos and then like Hillary Clinton is molesting children video next. Like there are people who've learned from this you know, gaming of the algorithms and hijacking of people's attention, mixing seemingly stupid content with super substantive stuff that fits mm-hmm. their agenda. I think a lot of people learned from this and mimicked it. And, you know, the New York Times in their own innovation report, which is an in-house research report that was leaked in 2014, basically was a document that was in many ways revering of BuzzFeed and talking about, all right, like how do we learn from this institution uh, and, and, you know, obviously New York Times has its own sort of stentorian nature, but it seems like a lot of people in media were looking at them and making fun of them publicly, but trying to mimic them in, in the background. Yeah, I think it's that's true to a certain extent. Like there was an explosion of similar companies, but as you mentioned, a lot of them don't still exist. And I think part of it is they were super innovative in the way that they got pe- they pulled people in and they pulled in revenue. One of them was doing these native ads, so you'd have like an article that looks like a BuzzFeed article, but was really an ad, and they yeah. kind of write it all in, or just have these super clickbaity but ultimately super vapid videos and articles that you really got nothing out of. And yes, I think that was super effective in the beginning, but I also think that consumers and internet users got savvier yeah. and like we're way better at picking out that's a native ad and I'm not going to click on this. Like we get the cues now. We're also way better at looking at something and being like that feels like clickbait. Like the concept of clickbait is something that I think a lot of people control for. Yeah. And then also you have the fact that like this was back in like the mid 2010s that if you were bored you'd be watching BuzzFeed videos. I think that was a pretty common thing for young people, but now they don't have this sort of monopoly on like being the video thing to turn to when you're bored. Like there's there's just more alternatives. Like there was they were pre-Vine for a part of their video heyday and now yeah. there's TikTok and like all these shorter form things that are easier to access and also just like less cringy and annoying sometimes, other times maybe more. But I think that like consumers are wiser to some of these tactics that they use of just like click this and look at buy this thing and like here's all this flashy garbage that I think we all got a little sick of. I also just think it's harder to start a media company today than it was back then in the sense that you have all this disaggregation. There's so many incentives for people to be free agents. Like if you're a well-known figure, You can make so much more money on your own, starting your own podcast, starting a Substack, et cetera. And it takes like a very special type of figure, like a Bill Simmons type figure who has a strong vision and a sense for how do I cultivate many shows in order mm-hmm. to survive. Like if you think about some of the big media companies that have come about in the past 10 years, like Crooked Media being an example, they're essentially personality dependent entities, right? If there's no John yeah. Favreau and Tommy and Love It, there is no Crooked Media. And rare is the case of the Bill Simmons who's got like 15 different shows or Ben Shapiro who's got 15 different shows of 15 different people who could all be independent agents, but all who decide to go into this company. Mm. I think what BuzzFeed did was make a lot of stars. Those stars got pissed off at the way the company was run. There was probably some issues around compensation. And now they're posting videos about why they left BuzzFeed. It's so much harder today to create that cohesive vision. Yeah, it's crazy. The views that are just raked in by this like entire subgenre on YouTube of why I left BuzzFeed and this fascination that people have with it. Hello friends and welcome to another video. Today I'm going to be talking about why I left BuzzFeed. There's been some rumors going on and I figured I would quell those today by talking about why I left BuzzFeed. We left BuzzFeed. Um, when did we leave BuzzFeed? We left BuzzFeed. Why did we leave BuzzFeed? So you want to know why I left BuzzFeed? And here's the truth. There's definitely like looking at the the car crash sort of rubbernecking thing going on here. It's crazy there's this whole host of these external personalities who went super viral with the i left because of this thing and some of them have sustained their following and like just recently there was the try guys scandal about ned what is the try guys because i I saw this in our research and i just hesitated to go down this (laughs) rabbit hole they were like just four buzzfeed guys that they i I don't know if they put themselves together what does try mean in this they just try things like they're just like 
No. All right, so our producer Michael was saying that they they one of their examples would create a pop tart without a recipe. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. So I mean, they uh, nothing that you're. It's almost be, like the how to. You're not no. Show, there's no how to. It's the opposite way? of okay. how to. It's like just guys that are inept doing things that they shouldn't be doing. But I it's see. like when I I used to watch them and I was entertained by them in like middle school, but yeah. like or maybe high school. I'm not sure. But um, they had, they were very popular and they had like a cult following and there was even an SNL skit recently about like their scandal with one of them yeah. um, having an affair. But I actually met one of them. I've, I was showing um, our producers a photo of me taking a selfie. I was super excited. I was like 16. I met one of them in London. So nice. they did have like a cultural sway to a pretty crazy degree and they still have this dedicated fan base, but they have all these, these talents who clearly figured out like, I mean, BuzzFeed was just throwing things at the wall and seeing what stuck. And like occasionally they would have these breakout stars and it was always based on their personality and not really the content itself. Yeah. And then BuzzFeed never innovated to figure out like how to incentivize them when they do go viral to stay. And these right. contracts would run up and there was nothing proprietary about what BuzzFeed was providing them. They were basically making their own shows and doing their own things independently and had no reason to continue to pump their revenue through BuzzFeed. and several of them are continue to be like some of the most popular YouTubers that exist. But when we take this back and we like, we cut through all the personalities and everything, you know, a couple of days ago, the CEO of BuzzFeed wrote an email to the staff, you know, announcing this latest series of layoffs. And, you know, there's been a bunch of stuff going on. There was a 15% reduction in staff in 2019. Even earlier this year, there was a 1.7% head mm -hmm. cut count. This week was 12%. This is a company that's shrinking. It had I mean, 1.26. It went public yeah. in 2021 with a $10 valuation that's down to $1. So, wow. So, yeah, this is a company that's really struggling, may not exist much longer, but again, big lesson of all this is it whether it survives or not it was extremely influential yeah i think this is just a story of like an era of the internet dying where in the beginning they were kind of the 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 people who were being decentralized and pulling away from the establishment and we had still like the big names of news media that just had control over everything and they were the new small startup and then they kind of became what they were trying not to be and they also had all these millennial quirks of clickbait and right. and react to this and viral videos that i think gen z just breezes past today and so there's this whole like new generation of even more micro creators and content creators that i think gen z represents and you know the place to go viral or to have a lot of sway is not a company like buzzfeed it's like making your own tiktoks for two seconds right. and so this is just a further story of disaggregation and also just a story of the death of an era of the internet where clickbait and native content could kind of reign supreme yeah i was thinking this is like the mtv of its time you know mm -hmm. like the mediums change the people's yeah. consumption patterns change but it defined an era you know? yeah that's kind of how this seems So we're jumping back into a little more legal territory here, but this might feel like a local legal story, but really it is a more national educational story with some widespread implications for charter schools and independent schooling options. But just recently, Oklahoma's Attorney General John O'Connor released an opinion that challenges their state statute on their Charter School Act um, based on some recent Supreme Court decisions. And basically what this act establishes is that charter schools cannot have any sort of religious programs or affiliations because they're taking tax dollars and are at least partially public schools and institutions. So basically what O'Connor is making the case for here is that based on what the Supreme Court has ruled on recently, they're probably open to allowing religious charter schools to be established and that effectively this act is doing more to discriminate against religious organizations than it is to potentially prevent the religious establishment of anything under the guise of the government. And so there's a tension here between the establishment clause and the free exercise clause. So just a reminder for those like me who are not legal experts here, um, free exercise is basically the guarantee that as an American citizen, you can practice whatever religion you like. And the establishment clause is a guarantee under the First Amendment that you will not be compelled by the government to practice any religion. And so this charter school question kind of hits at an interesting, delicate balance between the two, because the question is like, yes, these are, are independent schools that have non-elected private boards, but they are getting public funding. They are semi-public schools by, by most 
estimations. And so at what point does tax dollars or a government particularly designating a school as a charter school become the establishment of a religion if they're religious? And at what point does allowing a charter school to have a religious affiliation mean that you are just allowing people to express the religion as they please? Yeah, this is obviously a case that caught my attention. And we talked about a main case during last Supreme Court term called Carson versus Macon, which was all about the state's prohibition on giving voucher dollars, which is giving money to parents for private schools, prohibition on using those for sectarian schools. So Mm -hmm. any kind of religious school, the Supreme Court ruled last term that you can't prohibit the use of those funds for private schools to religious institutions. And that case was notable because in that decision, Roberts said there's no distinction between a school's religious status and the use of funds for religious purposes. Translation, Mm -hmm. there was this sense that religious affiliation and discrimination on religious affiliation is different than discriminating on uh, government discriminating on the use of those funds. So, meaning if you, there was a there, were pre, there was a previous case about uh, playground funds, right? Saying, all right, this religious institution wants to build a playground. There were previous That's cases. Trinity this, Lutheran Church. Yeah, you can't discriminate against them just because they're a religious institution because it's not a religious playground, right? Yeah. So everybody thought that's kind of where the line was drawn, but then it's now been extended to say, well maybe it could be a religious playground. This is what people have been arguing. And I think this is just one step in that direction. When we did that segment on Maine, I said, and actually Breyer in his eventual decision as well said this, what about charters? Mm -hmm. And at the time I was like, this is just the beginning of a conversation now that's gonna extend public dollars for charter schools, which are usually nonprofit institutions run independent of school districts that are regulated by the state. So they're quasi public institutions. But with private unelected boards, typically. Unelected boards, but who are given a, like the the idea of a charter is you're given a charter by the state. This actually in many ways reminds me of what we talked about on Tuesday with that Missouri uh, student loan entity, which is quasi public as well. Now where the politics of this get interesting, because I'm gonna try to zoom out of the legal stuff for a second, because there's been a lot written about the law here. The politics of this are fascinating because those of us who run charters, I ran charters in Tennessee and Mississippi, two states that have a lot of uh, religious people (laughs) and a lot of state legislators who want to start religious schools and want to use the public dollars for religious schools. Back when I was lobbying for a change to Mississippi state law and Alabama state law, we were all clear that these weren't gonna be religious institutions. And often in those states, the religious institutions were also the segregation academies. So there was a a real history of of discrimination within religious schools. Proponents of charters like me have been calling charters public schools for years. It is the one of the biggest talking points in favor of charter schools. And there's a reason why the National Charter School Association came out against this move and similar moves is because this is, this is a death blow to one of the most important arguments in favor of charter schools, which is they are public schools. Yeah, I think, I mean, just trying to sift through all the different legal precedents here was super confusing. And there seems to be like really no answers on the line of just how public charter schools are, just how important it is that tax dollars are tied to whether or not it's a, a just an educational application or a religious education application. And so there's a lot of questions here that go back to like the founding fathers wanting to designate the tax dollars were not being used to perpetuate any religion. And to me, I I can kind of see this going either way because of course you're not saying as the Oklahoma attorney general, I'm only going to designate it for this specific religion that's endorsed by the state. So there could be a way to do it in a non-denominational sense. We've already had the precedent of religious organizations being able to open charter schools, but not have a religious bent to the school themselves. And so I found everything here a little bit confusing, to be honest. And a lot of experts are also confused by the kind of mess of legal precedent here, including Josh Dunn, who's a professor of political science at the University of Colorado, who we spoke to. There was a hopeless mess of contradictions. So everyone agreed it was it, it was a disaster. The disagreement was over, how, how do you fix it? <laughs> um, and the court is moving in a direction that's much more accommodating to religion uh, to try to, to try to clean it up. I remember at one point, the Supreme Court actually simultaneously had, had opinions where they said, States could provide religious school pupils with books, but not with maps. Yeah, I'm with him that there is a tension. There's no easy way to resolve it. Yeah. I kind of liked where we were, which was 
the government can't stop private actors from the you know from exercising their religion they can't stand in the way but within our public institutions we're really careful not to establish religion and mm -hmm. that you know and we've had these cases we talked about the coach prayer case last time there's like these gray areas yeah but there what's not a gray area is everybody agrees that if it were a traditional public school and they were holding religious classes at least as of today, who knows where this goes, but at least as of today, everybody agrees that would be unconstitutional. Yeah. Or as, a, as a person who supports charters and believes that the public element of them is really important, this is going to be a boon to progressive critics of charters. What you're gonna see is a massive decrease in support, in my opinion, for charter schools in blue states because you're already starting to see religious freedom, um, sort of like the ACLU types, coming out against charters, particularly on these grounds now. Yeah. And so you're gonna see less support for charters in blue states, more support, support of them in red states. It's gonna increase that divide and the same will be true of vouchers. And it's the kind of polarization that I, I don't really want within the charter school debate right now. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm cleanly comfortable with the idea that religious institutions are frequently looking to give back to the community. And if that means opening a charter school, I think that's a great resource to tap into um, that infrastructure. But I don't, I mean, I could just see such a varying degree of how much a religious education is actually inculcated in a religious right. charter. And so that just that unanswered question, I think is enough for me to say that I don't think it's like strictly religious charter school seems like a good idea. But I do think for sure that it seems like a voucher system would be a solve to this because if a family wants to send their child to a religious school, I don't think their only public option if a charter is their closest school or their best school should be a religious one. But certainly they should be able to use the tax dollars that they are paying their part into for the education system to apply to that sort of education if they would like. And so I think designating that, yes, it's okay for religious schools to take voucher money on the not because the government is saying we're going to put our tax dollars towards this but because the parent is saying i'm going to take those tax dollars and apply them myself as a non-state actor that seems satisfying to me in 2002 the supreme court said it was okay to use vouchers in that sense and so to me i think you could parse out those two issues of like actually giving charters or just giving individual vouchers to sort of solve the issue that there are people who want to use tap into their public funds to educate their child in a religious setting and that seems completely appropriate to me yeah there's been this this transition from a point where it was clear based on the jurisprudence that state actors could not use uh, public dollars and public institutions to promote uh, like to, to hand over money to religious institutions for this kind of stuff and so it was a prohibition on it then it became well they may but you don't have to right there were these a certain body of cases where it was like all right well if oklahoma wants to fund these things in their own way of vouchers they can but you're not required to fund yeah. religious institutions and there's also the alternative way of looking at that of saying like if you do have this broad program that applies to schools there could be a lens to say that there's something discriminatory about the fact that specific like if you have a religious affiliation that you're going to be excluded from these general public yeah. funds but that's been established for a while now that's the use versus affiliation thing where we are now is you must that's what the may case said, the main case said is like now instead of saying you may use those funds and you and there's obviously the use and affiliation thing who like can you clarify when you say you may like the state the state basically to... what maine was is because what maine was saying hey i'm not saying anything about oklahoma i'm just saying we don't want to give money to sectarian institutions what the supreme court says is you must if you're going to open up for vouchers and charters, you must open it up for sectarian yeah. institutions too. That is new. And uh, we spoke to a guy named Charles Haynes, who's a senior fellow at the Freedom Forum. And he basically gave a metaphor of a wall here, saying like, this wall is crumbling. Some of us would have hoped they'd just say, look, the state should be in the business of promoting religion, period. If you want to use the wall metaphor, the, the wall has been lowered, there've been holes in it, there've been you know, efforts to kind of take it down. and Yet there's always been some semblance of a wall. And I would have said that the last thing to go and would not go is direct funding of government to religion. If that, does, if that isn't prohibited by the Establishment Clause, then what's the, what does the Establishment Clause do? 
I mean, what's left? I mean, I would say this is why I'm going to stick to my argument that I think vouchers make more sense because I don't see that as a direct state funding a, a religious institution. I see that as a parent using the state funds that they're compelled to pay into, that they're compelled to participate in a public education if they don't have the personal funds to use them elsewhere and pay for a private education. I think if the parent is the actor who's deciding which religious affiliation they want to put that voucher money towards, words that seems acceptable to me it could be any religion it's not the state saying this is the one prescribed religion that's allowed or the one religious school that works under that system but i do think that that's a convincing argument for why saying that we'll have an entire charter that's acting under the guise of a pseudo public school to get this like funnel of tax money i i think that's where the nuance is for me is i i am totally fine with parents exercising their own discretion on mm-hmm. whether or not they want to apply their money towards a religious school. Yeah, and I think what's fascinating is you'll you'll see this playing out at a time when you're starting to see certain blue state governors like Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, uh, like Pritzker in Illinois, who've warmed up to vouchers. It'll be interesting to see if in a world where they have to use those vouchers in a way that potentially has to go to religious institutions, does that affect this at all? I'm not sure. Because, you know, you look at a debate like in New York, for example, we talked about the Orthodox schools, for example. Mm-hmm. The Orthodox uh, community is not necessarily Republican or Democratic, right? So it's sometimes we think of religious institutions as a strictly right wing uh, entity or a series of entities or, or, yeah. or voting base. The politics of this can get complicated. Pennsylvania is a great example. Long standing, huge charter school network, um, the Gulen network of charter schools uh, run by a, a Turkish dissident who's very controversial back home in Turkey, there's been a longstanding debate where actually it's been the conservatives who generally like charter schools, but have always been trying to ensure that those don't become, like in the age of 9-11, this was happening, like they don't become some kind of like Muslim religious institution. Now it seems like their legal you know, reasoning could be applied to those schools to say, hey, you could do as much you know, Islamic uh, teaching as you want within those institutions. It'll be interesting if that is true how people respond to that. I'm I'm not quite sure. Well, that's all that we have for today. We will be back here next week. But in the interim, remember to like, subscribe, add us to your subscriptions on whatever podcast platform that you use. And we'll see you soon. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Moyo Adeolu. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Monica Espedia. 